Welcome to the second season of Influence Me, a podcast series where I discuss matters of leadership with a wide range of guests. I'm Assistant Commissioner Andrew Short. For me, this podcast series is all about supporting leaders, both experienced and emerging, through the many challenges that will come on their leadership journey. It is my view that leadership is all about influence, and I look forward to interviewing more guests for the purpose of increasing knowledge and understanding of leadership. As the title of this podcast suggests, I want to be influenced. It's a pleasure today to have Matt Cullo with me. Matt is a registered psychologist with over 10 years experience consulting to organisations and delivering success in talent management, organisational development, learning and development and strategic human resource management solutions. Matt is someone who has worked with our organisation as he has across our sector. And I note, Matt, that's a long list of organisations, lots of government departments, but then also some organisations you know, like Powerlink, Ergon, Queensland Rail, local government. So it's really good to have you here today because we can explore the really important things about people who are going through that maze of recruitment and selection. I'll just point out here that in Matt's bio that he sent me, he says, as Hudson's self-proclaimed chief impact strategist, Matt is obsessed with seeing people challenge themselves. And I think that's something that you and I have in, in common. Mm-hmm. Also, Matt is dangerously allergic to the archaic approach to leadership development. And you refer to it as death by PowerPoint approach, limited in efficacy due to the cognitive dissonance and paltry half-life associated with traditional learning. I've never heard words used in such a powerful way of describing <laughs> maybe old school thinking mm. versus maybe the, the more modern approach to something. And also here, you know, describing yourself as a mix between a mad scientist and a sports coach. And I've got to see your abilities in, in this area of concern. As you're aware, this leadership podcast series is about helping leaders both experience and emerging to understand or helping them understand a pathway through the many different challenges that that they'll come across. So today is all about recruitment and selection. And as I said to you before we started, looking at it from the candidate's perspective, but also looking at it from the organization's perspective. Listeners of this podcast will have been on both sides of the table. And it's quite a different experience on both sides of the table. Mm -hmm. So Matt, it's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Beauty. So let's get into it. I was reading last night about the challenge that some organizations have in attracting the right candidate. And mm-hmm. we can talk about brand of the, you know, the brand or the reputation of the organization, how they attract. Do you think organizations are always clear about the type of people they want to attract to a recruitment process? What's your thoughts on that? Definitely not. Especially in the current market, you know, we see that there is on average only 1.8 available candidates per role in Australia, given the talent shortage. So there's a huge focus on organizational brand, EVP, but even with that investment, you still see this disconnect between what the organization is actually looking for and what they're putting out there from an attraction perspective. Often you just see a, a prettied up position description a contemporary version of the task list that's required. But what you're missing is what are the values that are required? What are those individual leadership attributes that are going to be needed every day? What does a day in the life of this role actually look like? So there's a huge disconnect between 
the reality and the brand image being put forward. So is it fair to say one of the most important things that needs to happen on the organization's side is to be really clear about what who you're recruiting for or what you're recruiting for, the purpose? Absolutely. Purpose is it needs to be intentional and you need to have a great deal of transparency. If you sugarcoat the role, you're not going to attract the right people for the requirements of the position. And then panelists generally get a bit frustrated Yeah. when... And I've been there myself. You look down the list of candidates and you can't help wondering whether you've targeted the right or sent the right message for the people that you're wanting to attract to the organisation. Thank you. And that's really important for us to agree upon that the organisation needs to be clear on the purpose that they're recruiting to. Let's switch over now and think about the candidate a bit. I've got a view that recruitment selection processes can be quite confusing Mm. for candidates. Mm -hmm. And it probably goes back again to how the organisation articulates the role that they're trying to recruit to. So what's been your view on how well organisations do this or maybe how well they don't do it Mm. and being clear about that target and the people they get recruiting to them? It's a good question. And it's how long is a piece of string is probably the best answer in terms of how organisations, agencies, talent acquisition teams go about it. You can have a centralized recruitment function where everything is in sync, and you can also have dispersed regional recruitment strategies. Sometimes with a centralized model where you get consistency, but you also get complacency because the decision-making sits in one spot. Then you have the diversified model where you lack consistency across panels, recruitment processes, initiatives, and that becomes really confusing. But sometimes you get more of a higher impact process that understands the local requirements of the role or the position. It's an interesting thing to balance. Yeah. Because on one hand, that, that centralized model is going to give you a tighter framework to operate in, but then sometimes it can be a bit removed from it. You know, where you've got people centralised who are not probably appreciating the nuances of that local area. So, yes. I, I, and I don't look, I don't know the answer to this one uh, because I've seen both methods uh, used. Sometimes I think by you know being clever and having maybe a consistent person across the different panels or the, uh, across the different mechanisms where they're assessing can help. Certainly, it's something that I think organisations are still struggling with. What's your view? And this is where I'm going to really switch it over to the people listening to this podcast, in some cases, are going to be likely having an interaction with an organization for the purpose of securing a role. Mm -hmm. What do you think they should do first? The moment they choose to say, that's interesting to me, that role, what should they do first? Ask themselves why. Ask themselves why. Tell me more about that. Well, why is that role interesting? What are the values drivers that are motivating you to apply for that position? Is it because you want that extra pay bump? Is it because it's your God-given right because you've been in the organization for 25 years? Is it because you feel you're deserving of it? Or is it because you're really looking for that next step in your career, that challenge, something different to step outside your comfort zone and continue learning and growing? And to be honest, most of those, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's fine. But you need to know your why, because that will underpin how you prepare for that process and how you put yourself forward in the interviewing process. So this is an interesting question and an interesting range of points that you just provided. 
in looking back at my earlier days in understanding why I chose to apply and become a you know, frontline supervisor and, and then moving from there. Mm. I look back at that and I probably am, I'm probably pretty clear now that my motivations and actions weren't probably clear. Mm. And whereas now you're a bit older, you're a bit wiser. And I think it's such an important point for people to ask the why question. Mm. And it's interesting how it evolves to, for me, more recent times in watching people go through recruitment selection processes for more senior roles. How in this day and age, we've still got situations where people apply for a senior role in a maybe another state or mm. another location and they don't even have a chat to their own family about it before. Mm. And this is a, uh, I, I thought that we were better than that, but clearly, and I think it comes back to your point about what, what's the driver for you to do that. I think ego tends to have a big, Massive. A, a big role here, whether it's people thinking, oh, if I get that job, I'll feel better about myself or I'll, I'll feel fulfilled. It's a real challenge. You got any observations on that base I just described? I think the key point that you mentioned there is the clarity around your motivation can sometimes be very clear and other times it can be pretty murky. But the reason why is because it's always changing. One of the big reflection I have is when I joined Hudson, a part of the requirement was to do a motivational driver's assessment. And I thought that, you know, I'd come out really high in terms of ambition, leadership desire, strategic challenge, because they're the things that I love. The number one trait I came out high on was financial reward. And I thought, this, there's got to be something wrong with this assessment. This is not me. I'm not a, a cash-hungry person. But when I stopped and reflected, I went, well, I just bought my first house. I had just had a wedding, which probably cost more than the house, or it felt like anyway. And we were just embarking on IVF to have our first attempt yeah. to have our first child. Yeah. So then for then I sat back and, well, well, of course, financial reward and recognition is coming through as my number one driver. That is where I'm at in my life. And But stopping and reflecting on that, I was able to get comfortable with that and realize that financial security was a primary motivator for me being so ambitious. And it helped me reposition my why around why I was so hungry to succeed. Excellent range of points and very honest. So thank you very much for being being very direct about that. I'd like now just to explore a little bit because the purpose of this podcast is to help people in some way and you've mentioned the why has been the first point you're going to go to and understand exactly why you're applying or wishing to, to apply for that role. Mm. Once you've got that clear in your mind and, you, and you're comfortable and you're going to go forward, one of the things I see still happen is people seek advice from a range of people on how they should write their you know, resume, how should their suitability statement or whatever the written form is. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there. I think people end up, depending on who they speak to, can actually get quite confused. So what's your advice to these people around if you need to bolster your knowledge Mm. around how to best present and prepare yourself? What's your thoughts on that? I see that a lot too. I think it comes back to, uh, there's uh, there's a saying that I always uh, align to, which is fail to prepare and prepare to fail. So, which is often a funny one in the emergency services context where you always are preparing for the next unknown event. You have to be always in that state of preparedness. Yet I see so many individuals failing to do the proper preparation for these recruitment events. For people that spend their whole career preparing, yet they they fail to do that for their own roles and career. 
And so I think what they do is they reach out to people they trust, coaches, mentors, senior leaders, people who are on panels, have been on panels. They're getting all these mixed messages, all these subjective opinions because they're other people's experiences of what did or didn't work. But they don't have a north star to align that to. You know, what part of this information am I going to take on board? What is not relevant? So what should they do then? You're saying that there's all this range of people. Some may not be helping them. Yep. So what should they do? You've got to do your own homework first. So have you picked up the position description? Have you looked at the competency framework that you're being assessed against? The thing about a recruitment process... Have you have you researched the organisation? Have you researched I can't believe it. In this day and age where I, I get to still see candidates yep. who, and it might be as an example, there's been a substantial or important report or review that's been released about an organisation. And for me, it's maybe this is me now, maybe the earlier version of me would have made this mistake too, where you're not appreciative of these are the current waves that are washing over an organisation mm. and people don't go looking for that report mm. to bring into that interview or recruitment and selection process as evidence that you're a, a knowledge-based person. Yep, absolutely. And that's not about going and being able to recite the first paragraph of the 2025 strategy. Yep. It's about understanding what are the unique challenges that the content, that the organization is facing and what part does this role that you're applying for play in that challenge? What do you, And then what do you bring to the table? Yeah, and our sector by its nature we, emergency services, mm. we have incredibly competent technical people. Mm-hmm. And I see some of these people become disappointed when they're not successful in moving out of a, what would be a frontline technical role into a, a mid-level management leadership role. Mm. And they get confused by it because I think my sense is that they think I'm very good at what I do and therefore I should be able to do that, or I would be good at that. Mm. What's your takeaway for these people? The number one commonality I see across all emergency services when you're making that jump from team leader, operational leader, tactical leader, to that strategic leader or senior leader is complacency. You are with an organization for long enough that you think you understand how it works and how it operates. You understand the organization's hierarchy. And the biggest risk is whilst the hierarchy itself is typically static, doesn't change, you go from firefighter to station officer to inspector to super, that's pretty predictable at the time. But the organization's context, like you said before, is waves. You have these waves of challenges coming over. So the actual makeup and the challenge of the role is completely different every time you almost apply year on year. So it's not about just understanding what is the role I'm going for, but what is the role in context. A great example is the jump from a station officer to an inspector. It's just one stepwise move, but it's probably the biggest stepwise move across fire, police, every emergency services that I've seen. Because you go from being the captain of the football team, you're on the field leading and directing to you become the coach on the sideline. It's a very different positional play, requires a very different style of thinking, and you have whole new challenges. And everything that you learn as being a captain of the football team 
almost holds no relevance as a coach. It's a totally different game and different skill set. Yeah, the term, the grey, you know, yep. my experience is that making that shift from front line into middle and beyond, it gets greyer as you go up. And the more traditional decision-making processes that you use in that more technical area become less effective as you move up there. And I think that's an incredibly important thing. You'd agree or you got... Absol- yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's... It's a lot more structured and predictable in those technical, tactical environments. You know, there's... Which probably goes back to the why. And this is the thing about you know, people who, and I know some good frontline leaders who chose to stay there mm. because they're extremely good at what they do and they enjoy it. Mm. And at some stage they've made a choice to say, this is it for me because this is where I can have most effect. And probably this goes back to my earlier comment about sometimes egos are not our friends and you know, drive us into places. We've got voices and people around us who are saying, oh, you, know, that, you should do that and whatever. It's quite a complex dynamic. Now jumping into the more detailed element within recruitment and selection. Mm. It's a challenge, I would imagine, for a panel, and I know, and I've talked about panels to some degree, and I know that there's so many other elements to recruitment and selection, but in the end, the panel's trying to get to know this person, Hmm. whether that would be the data that they're getting from maybe an assessment center or the results of an interview. What's some of the things that people can do to make that that good first impression? Because I am a believer in, you know, you've got one opportunity to make a first impression. So what's your experience in that? I think the important thing to remember is ultimately no matter how objective and structured a recruitment process is, at the end of the day, it's ultimately driven by people and people are subjective and we all have unconscious biases. So sometimes it's little things. I still see senior leaders roll in and their shirt's hanging out. Or it's, you know, it's unironed. And you can literally see panel members, like the, the twitch of the eye or, yeah, you yeah. know, those little quirks. Um, and, and it could be deadly. Yeah. I've, I've seen that. I've, I've been on panels where you know, someone d- took a dislike to something yep. very early. And even though you're trying to manage that through the process, it's hard. You, I think human nature is that if you've got a hot button and someone just pressed it, then it's going to take you a while to, you know, come back to a baseline. Absolutely. And then there's other things, you know, I've seen where candidates have failed to acknowledge a female panelist, those sorts of things. So there's the obvious and then there's the not so obvious cues that come into play as well. Yeah. And unfortunately, even the ones that people think are not obvious can be very obvious to certain people. Yep. And hence why in discussing us recording this, I, you know, I use the term, you know, the maze of a recruitment and selection process where you're finding your way, find your way through. In some cases, you could probably call it a shark tank. Yep. In that, you, you know, you've got to jump in and get to that other side. And it's a tragedy when people, you know, they don't put effort into preparing, researching, understanding the organisation, uh, even just being respectful and how your attitude can actually demonstrate during an interaction with a panel. The importance of fairness mm-hmm. and being objective, and I acknowledge that you just spoke about. Yeah, we all we all want to be objective, but in the end, we're talking about human beings here, so mm-hmm. there's going to be an, an amount of subjectivity to it. Mm. The notion of fairness, it's important for organisations because if you look at media, there's been many articles and 
reports when organisations lose their way mm. with how they recruit people. And it can be incredibly damaging to mm-hmm. organisational reputation. Any ideas or concepts you want to share about things that organisations can do to protect that? Where I've seen it go wrong is often you can have a really objective, rigorous, defensible recruitment process and it falls down at the, at the final hurdle, which is the panel making a decision. You have that merit list and you become influenced by politics or personal favoritism or some sort of outside factor, extraneous variable. And in the moment, it feels like it's the right decision, but you're unaware of a particular bias playing an impact. And it's not until that gets reviewed later on that you suddenly realize you've made that mistake. And so it's really important that as a panel, you're continuously playing devil's advocate. Why are we making that decision? Why have we bumped up a score by half a point or down by half a point? What is that? Is that fair and equitable across the board? If we're doing it for one, are we doing it for everybody? So it's really important that panels don't get comfortable with this long drawn out process and think that at the final hurdle, they can just make a decision because that is where fundamentally it goes wrong. The use of data-driven processes mm-hmm. and that term data-driven, is, you know, you, you hear it more now than ever before. Mm. What does that look like in recruitment selection when you're using data well? When you're using data well, it's about having a, a multi-stage process. Now, this isn't about putting someone through a sheep dip and, and totally taxing them. And this is where contemporary panels or, or recruitment processes differ from probably the more traditional ones in the sense of we need more detailed insights into someone's potential and their behavioral capability. You know, it's not so much about what is their history of technical skills or their list of qualifications. But in doing that, we also have to be mindful that is the data fit for purpose? Is it relevant? Does it have the right context? Are we putting candidates through way too many flaming hoops and hurdles? So it's this juggling act of, what is enough to get robust data, but also what is an efficient and agile process as well. Yeah, and the balance between those different components of the recruitment process can be an interesting thing to manage, particularly when you've got people involved in the recruitment selection process who, when they probably last were in front of a panel many years ago, their experience was very different. Maybe back then it was very traditional, you know, write write a letter and then come and have an interview. But now we know that, maybe you can check my understanding here, my understanding is that an interview is one of the less effective ways to get a sense of the true attributes of that person. Is that still the case? It's not, but the reason why is, is it's a common belief but it's because of the way that the interview is designed, the type of questions, Ah, the scoring rubric. So the variability of it, it can be one of the least effective processes or it can be one of the most predictive if you're asking the right questions in the right way. Thank you. You you just helped expand my knowledge because I've actually (laughs) used that expression a couple of times because of my desire to evolve thinking around recruitment and selection over a, a long period. So, you know, we've talked about preparation. We've talked about, you know, be careful who you get your advice from, mm-hmm. how you present yourself, you know, first impressions 
Any, any other real hot buttons that people need to be really clear on in terms of engaging with the recruitment and selection process? Yeah, I think you know, it starts with the fundamentals. So understand the role, then it's understand the context the role is playing. So a great example often is you're going for a role level, let's say inspector. You understand where the inspector sits in the hierarchy and the relative position it plays in terms of rolling out higher level strategy down to operational tactical responses. But the nature of the role you're going, you might be going into an inspector talent pool. Now, what you're going into, you could end up being project managing a new IT system that's being implemented into the organization. You could be posted to the most regional part of the state and representing the organization from a community perspective. So that requires community engagement, media savvy. You could end up in the commissioner's office, which requires political astuteness and strong stakeholder management. So it's important not to get too caught up in the task base band level and understand that your biggest value as a leader is your adaptability. It's your versatility because it's your ability to step into any one of those situations that is going to ultimately lead to your success, but the organization's success. Yeah, very well put. Thank you. Just to put a line under this part of our chat, Mm. what's the cost to organizations when they get the recruitment role? I read a stat only a few weeks ago that said 61% of senior leadership hires are not prepared for the strategic challenge that they face. Scary. Yeah. So adding to that, the stat said that somewhere between 50 to 60% of new senior leadership hires will fail in the first 18 months. So fail to a point where they depart or they get asked to depart. What are we talking about here? All the above? All the above. Depends on the performance management capabilities of the organization. And public versus private sector. Correct. All those nuances. Absolutely. Yeah. And therefore, by extension of that thinking, when organizations are very clear about their purpose and they're very clear about the person or the talent that they're looking for, I'd imagine that the flow and positive effect the organization is a force multiplier to use that term. Is that the case? Yeah. And do stats uh, prove that or support that? Absolutely. And the cost of a poor hire far outweighs the cost of a good hire. So it's great to get the right hire, but it hurts more to get it wrong. So having a clear purpose and a clear understanding, and often you see that the panel, especially in the public sector and even in emergency services, the panel can often be a ragtag bunch of, well, who's got the availability to be on the panel? It's not, do they have the clearest understanding of the strategic challenges we face or the political challenges that we're experiencing or the structural changes that are coming up for the organization? So does the panel truly understand what the organization needs, not just does the candidate understand what is required of them. One of the things which I think relates to the points you just made is when we talk about culture mm-hmm. and when we talk about using culture in a positive in a positive sense, and if a panel comes together, generally that panel is going to be people who have been with the organization for some time, would understand the culture how do they try to leverage off the positive aspects of the culture and avoid themselves getting in the trap of hiring or appointing someone who is only going to be more of the same negative culture? You got any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, it's uh, there is certainly research as a psychologist. You know, I'm always looking at the behavioral element to it. And it's well known that as individuals, when we're making a decision, especially in a recruitment context, we're looking for that X factor. And that X factor is actually often a mirror of something that we aspire to have or we think we have. So if the organization is going through a real cultural shift or cultural challenge and it's, well, you know, I see myself as someone who's really trying to combat that, you will look for that in other individuals and you'll either see it and you go, great, that's the candidate. And you get this halo effect where you, you suddenly don't hear any of the negatives or anything else they're saying. You just go, great, that person's like me. It's just that gut feel and we're on board and you've made a very biased decision. Is it the same dynamic? Like if we choose that we want to buy a, a blue Land Cruiser mm-hmm. and all of a sudden we start seeing blue Land Cruisers on the road everywhere, they just pop out. Is, it, is that the same human thinking brain dynamic playing out there? Absolutely. It's the same. It's the same as, you know, um, when my partner got pregnant and suddenly I saw pregnant women everywhere. It just becomes front of mind. Absolutely. So when you're looking for this X factor, when you know the organization has a challenge and we really need a strategic thinker, a critical thinker, someone with, you know, political acumen, that becomes your focus. And the second you see that one core trait, you nail in on it. Or if you don't see it, you wave that candidate out of the process and ultimately you've potentially missed someone who has a lot of potential uh, you know matt i think we just found the title or part of the title for this podcast and you know, for the benefit of the listeners we've been trying to work out what we're going to call this and i think it's going to have x factor <laughs> in there somewhere okay let's now go into this final phase which is these five questions that i ask every guest you know, i'm not looking for a long answer whatever yep. pops in your mind the first question is what do you wish you really understood for me, uh, and I'm going to you know, be a psych nerd here and take it a step out of my role, but it is the understanding of the human brain. Why do we do things we, that we do? Why do we make the decisions? Why do we have our intentions that we do? And quite often, if you bring it back to the work context, you know, I'm often sitting there and go, Jesus, why did, they, why did they make that decision? Why did they make that move? What we know, what scientists know of the human brain is probably 5 to 10% you know, in terms of why we make decisions, how we think about things, the the disconnect between our subconscious and our conscious. So if I could learn and understand a bit more of that, I think that's ultimately... You, you and many others. We as a human made, race, I think. We, we, we as a human race. And one of the things that I learned a long time ago, and I, I try to use this regularly, is that I remind myself that I'm the only person who sees the world the way I see it. Yes. And that helps me when I get confused by why someone else has made a different decision or gone a different way. I actually, I'm a bit more accepting of that now, but it, the whole area is quite interesting. There's a, there's a great tactic that I do with that often when I've started a new team or I've got a new team member coming in or I'm working with some another agency's team. It's called the red elephant exercise. So I just ask everyone in the room to spend five minutes drawing a red elephant and then you actually see the diversity of, of red elephants and it's wild what you think because in your mind you've seen it the way you picture it and then you see 10 12 different versions of it and it just shows you how we can communicate the same two words but see it completely different yeah what wonderful example the next question is what do you wish that other people understood about you Whilst I'm a psychologist, I'm very pragmatic. I take a scientific approach to everything. I'm actually a very spiritual person. I grew up with a Maori influence and a Maori family. So I take a very humanistic lens to what I do. So 
it actually means that I struggle a lot with politics, workplace politics. Va- values moments. Values moments. Mm. I find that very con- conflicting for me at times. So even though I can objectively see the position that someone's made a decision or the organization has, coming from a, a human-based perspective, I can often really struggle with that. Uh, apparently, it's a, a good sign if someone can hold two conflicting thoughts in their mind at the same time. Yes. And I see people who don't do well with that, but I see people who can and, and allow those conflicting thoughts to bounce around and settle on where you're going to be. So I think it, I think the, the lesson for me is that you've got to accept these moments where there is a challenge for you in trying to reconcile, to use that word. Yep. Next question. In respect to your own leadership development and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the younger version of yourself? Never, never let an organisational need compromise you. Never let it compromise your values. Hold true to your values. For example, my two values that I have are loyalty and respect. And And just for the benefit of the listeners, uh, Matt just held up his arm and on the inside of his bicep, he has got these words tattooed there. So they're very important for me. Um, But it was a big learning for me coming up in the corporate organisational environment was just because I give that willingly and easily to people doesn't mean I'll get it in return. And often there's a mismatch between organisations expect that of you, but they don't put that onus on themselves to give it back. And sometimes we get given the carrot, dangle the carrot, or just do this or make this decision. And you'll often, and that's, that's actually a big part of being prepared for stepping into leadership is you will face times where you have to make a very hard decision that will be between the human factor or the organizational factor. And often the piece in the middle is your values and the yeah, decision and you have to make. It's a tough space to be in sometimes, just frankly. Yes. The next question is, if you had a magic wand, what's an ability you would give current leaders in our sector right now? And you've seen, by now, you've seen a lot of our aspiring leaders and, and our leaders. What's your thoughts on that? The ability to have a courageous conversation. Yeah. So the ability to, if you don't believe in a decision, a strategy, a vision, a purpose, having the confidence to say something, to say your piece. And obviously, that is, you need to be able to say it effectively, respectfully, to make sure it's not just your ego coming into play or your own personal belief. And sometimes it might challenge your values, but that doesn't mean it's right either. But it's that ability to have those tough conversations. And that also goes with, as a leader, being able to have those tough conversations with your team. I think one of the biggest things that I see is the fear of having performance conversations. And people see it as punitive or disciplinary. But as leaders, it's actually our job to empower and inspire the best in our people and sometimes that means having the tough conversations and helping people see that they're not performing or that they are struggling and then helping plant the seeds to well how can i help you grow how can i help you develop not you're not performing so we're putting you on a yeah trying to turn it into a, a balanced discussion and just to your point i agree and i've been there where, you know, I need to have this discussion, but all of a sudden your mind starts rationalising. You, you, you have a conversation with yourself and you convince yourself that you don't need to do it right now because you're very busy and all the rest of it. Yep. But early is, early is better. And, and I've expressed this before. One of the best things that people can do to avoid being on the receiving end of old news about uh, how, you, how you're going is to be in your boss's face all the time 
seeking feedback. Mm-hmm. And it might, might be, how am I doing? How do I do with that? You happy with that? You know, those sorts of very uh, short and pointed questions, I think, help in this space. So that's just my view. Look, I had the same boss for 10 years, yep. and you'd think that that might put us in a position of complacency and stagnation, but she wasn't afraid to get out the big stick and give me a good whipping. And <laughs> the good thing is, is it got to the point where I was the one asking for it. I was glutton for punishment. Yeah, yeah. I'd come asking for the whipping because it's what accelerated my career. In the 10 years that I worked for her, I went across various roles, across various disciplines and and climbed the hierarchy. And that's because she was continuously challenging me. Now, as a leader, what she got in return was my loyalty and respect. You know, I always had her back. I never let her down. And I always ensured that whenever she needed me, that I was there for her. So it goes to hand in hand as a leader that if you can have those tough, transparent, authentic conversations, you're building a trust base which will actually pay dividends to you. Yeah, lots of credit there you can you can store. And it's really powerful, Absolutely. really powerful. And the last question is, what's a legacy you wish to be remembered for? And I'll say as a leader in your industry, mm. even though your industry interacts with our sector all the time, what's a legacy that you're looking for? This, this one? This is a hard question, Matt. Oh, well, it is, but it isn't. So for me is whenever I hear that question, you know, what is the legacy? I instantly just hear ego. You know, it's it's almost like since the dawn of human civilization, it's, you know, I've got to win this battle because it's the legacy I want as the king or the queen of whatever it is. So whenever I hear legacy, I think it's a very egotistical, self-centered okay, thing. Yeah. That's just my yep. personal That's triggers fair. coming through. Yep. Yep. So for me, what I would like, my I guess, if I was to have a legacy, it would be what were the legacies that I helped be a part of and create? So how did I make people feel? How did I empower their success and their journeys? If there's a legacy that someone else wants to create, what did I do to empower that for them? Because ultimately, no one remembers what the commissioner did five commissioners ago or who led a particular response to an emergency event 25 years ago. But what they do remember is the impact that you get, that that the person had on you at that time. What they do remember is when you went through a really tough personal moment or a work professional moment, what you did as an individual to just be there and listen to them, to inspire them, to empower them, to connect them with someone that can help. Ultimately, at the end of the day, when you leave an organization or someone's writing your eulogy, they're not going to write the list of accomplishments. They're going to write the way you made them feel and the role that you played in their life. So... That's, that would be my legacy is to have a, a positive impact on people and to know that I actually helped them succeed in whatever they wanted to achieve. Yeah, and I think this is something that you and I are pretty close on. Yeah. Because you know, I feel I feel the same way. It's not about us, not about me. Yep. It's about those around you. Yep. Absolutely. And when leaders get that right, it's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. Well, that's the five questions. Great. And that's now taken us to the end. I thank you for coming in and having this chat with me. Pleasure. Uh, And I hope for the people listening that the things that we've discussed might make it just a little bit easier for you when you're fronting up next to get that job or get that promotion because that's part of life. And Matt, I love the work you do. I've had a bit to do with you over an extended period now and I appreciate your style, your character, your values. And I hope that your future is bright. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. You have a great day. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, mate.